1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 69th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEverly, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We are less than a week away from the big day. We are. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, I am too. Ready to get it over with. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I think everybody is, and I think the market is as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It will be. Um, but I was just – I think I've told people before, I'm a listener of the Joe Rogan podcast, and he I was listening to a podcast he was doing today or yesterday yesterday. And he said that he's going to hold a live uh, election night podcast. Well, that'll be interesting. So I feel like instead of watching one of the main media networks, I might just tune into that and see what that's like. Yeah, I'm that sure would be very interesting. Get some pretty hilarious commentary. I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they'll have some good guests. Yeah. Um, so we'll start with our regular schedule today, just going over uh, the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on October 27th. And the data is from Coifin Uh, S&P 500 index up 0.82% for the month of October and up just over 5% for the year, the Dow up, or excuse me, down 1.15% for the month and down 3.6% for the year, the NASDAQ up 2.36% for October and up 27.4% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 5.6% for the month and down 4.52% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.79% for the month and down 5.58% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.10%, the two-year treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year treasury bond uh, is yielding 0.84%. Two
2: observations there, Mark. First is, you know, risk happens quickly. Look how quick that small cap Russell 2000
1: index has come back. Yeah, it's been a major underperformer this year, and it's almost back to break even for the year. So it'd be interesting to see. And typically, when we come out of economic stress or recessionary periods, what we've seen in the past is that small caps tend to lead coming out of that. So it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if we continue to see that momentum for smaller names. Love that. And then the
2: other observation is, look at the yield on that 10-year, continuing to slowly migrate higher. Mm-hmm. All you know, the way up to a whopping 0.84%. I know. <laughs> it's just amazing, because that just was at the beginning of the month, around 07 That sound about right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe even a little lower. So uh, I think you're going to start to see some more upward pressure on these longer-term yields as people are thinking to themselves, do I really want to tie my money up for 0.84% for the next decade?
1: Right. And I think overwhelmingly, the answer should be no. And that's why I think you'll see that yield migrate higher. Might not be every month, but I right. think there's be some pressure. Right. Because if you think about it, they have to entice people to buy these treasury bonds. Right. And yep. people, I don't think, or at least myself, I don't want to settle for 0.84% per year. Nope. So a um, couple of things in terms of headlines and current events from the week Um Just a little bit on employment Uh, last Thursday, um, it showed that initial and continuing jobless claims both came in better than expected and initial claims dropped below 800,000 for the first time since March. And at 787,000, we're nearly 100,000 below consensus forecast of 870,000. Continuing claims were just as positive at 8.373 million. Continuing claims were more than a million below consensus forecast. So we continue to see employment heading in the right direction. Um, Secondly, COVID case update. Um, Obviously, it seems like we're getting spikes all across the United States right now. As the seven-day average uh, positive test rate and seven-day average new case counts, um, hospitalizations, and deaths all made new highs uh, for their current move upwards. The only good news here is that, um, you know, while the U.S. is seeing a huge uptick in in cases, it's small in comparison to Europe, um, where their, you know, new cases over the past seven days have more than doubled uh, in two and a half weeks. Um, and there also has been enormous case count growth in Belgium, uh, Czech Republic, um, and kind of elsewhere overseas. So relative to other uh, countries, I think um, we are not as bad as, as they are doing. Um, and we see that in a chart that we got from Bespoke Investment Research. So um, the final piece is that we already mentioned election day is next week. So um, it'll be, again, very interesting to see. What happens there? I know that um, uh, Judge Amy Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court earlier this week, so that gives the courts a six-three conservative majority, which I think favors President President Trump in the event that there is um, some problems with deciding who the clear winner is in the event of a contested election. So, yeah, one of the comment I want to throw out there is, you know, we're starting to get
2: uh, earnings reports right from third quarter. And uh, bespoke had a note. I'll be talking about it next week. The preview was they looked at something called triple plays. And for listeners, that is companies that beat earnings on top line revenue. So what they uh, grossed in receipts, their actual net earnings, and their uh, they raised guidance. So they beat earnings on the top line, the bottom line revenue, and actual net earnings, and they raised guidance. And Which
1: means they raise their estimates for revenue and earnings next quarter or th- next year. Thank essentially you. Essentially what guidance means.
2: And um, it's a surprisingly large number. And, and, um, and, I, and it's interesting because um, they were in essence uh, saying that you know, so what's the market reaction? Who cares? Tell me something I don't already know. Mm-hmm. So in essence, the market seems to be because of the election, because of these temporary jumps in the covid cases, it is uh, ignoring what I would normally
1: perceive to be very positive earnings data. I mm-hmm. just want to throw that out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um... I'll start off this week with a couple things that caught my eye. This was a chart from the U.S. Census Bureau. And um, this is going to be on our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast tab and click on the show notes and you'll be able to see this chart. Um, It shows uh, total U.S. business applications were up over 1.5 million in the third quarter of 2020. Love that. And I think that this is a really phenomenal sign that Americans are getting back to innovating. And if we think back over history, some of the best companies in the world today were born out of recessions or times of economic stress. And I believe this time is going to be no different. Um, You know, I strongly believe that some amazing companies will be born during this time and that will have a massive impact on the world going forward. And, you know, I'm thinking like Amazon and Facebook big. Exactly. Um, You know, I think that this is a very, very positive sign where most of these companies total U.S. business applications are coming from the south, uh, followed by the west, the midwest, and then the northeast. So you can see geographically where these uh, business applications are. But um, I think that's really positive in light of everything that has th- been thrown our way in 2020. Hopefully we start to see uh, you know, some positivity coming out of this for people down the road. Absolutely. and I think of stuff like demographics.
2: Also, when I see charts like this, the South, I bet you a lot of that stuff is focused in Florida. The no state tax
1: thing. You're seeing a lot of uh, Texas. Yep. Texas. You know, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, very. Um, Second thing that caught my eye was a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled How Comfortable Are You Holding Stocks for 30 Years? Uh, And this was on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, written on October 6th. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of points that Ben makes and kind of get your thoughts, Matt. OK. Um, so he starts off by saying, you know, the short term ups and downs in the stock market garner all of our attention. But true investors know long term returns are the only ones that matter. And I love that quote, by the way. Um, he goes on to say the biggest worry for many long term investors is a Japan style decades long malaise that sees the stock market give you nothing for 30 plus years. From the beginning of 1990 through the end of September 2020, the MSCI Japan index is up a grand total of 26%, good enough for annual returns of just 0.8% per year. Before I go any further, can you just talk about kind of what happened in Japan and do you think that this is likely or is there a a probable chance that this happens in the U.S.? Yeah, so um, in the late
2: 80s was a big boom time for Japan. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when the bubble ended up bursting, because prices just went up so high so fast for mainly things like real estate. Mm -hmm. And as that bubble burst, you know, it devastated that economy. And so what they did is they started printing a lot of money to try to spur economic activity. Now, the biggest problem with Japan uh, demographically, one, is their savings rate as a society is in the low 20 percent range is the average, Mm -hmm. drastically higher than the U.S. The other big issue is their demographics are against them. They're not reproducing enough. You know, they actually have a population that is actually decreasing and they have a very hardcore uh, immigration policy. So the demographics aren't on their side. So as they started printing all this money in the 90s to try to get asset prices moving again, it didn't happen. And now they are in what I would call stuck in a deflationary environment. And what that means for listeners is it means prices are actually going down. They're Mm -hmm. not going up. And so imagine if you were wanting to buy a business, Mark, or you wanted to buy a piece of real estate, just so listeners can understand the concept. You know, if it's going to get cheaper in a year, that piece of real estate, why would I buy it now? Right. Right. And then so the government, you fast forward, they started to what we call monetize the stock market. So they're printing money to buy stocks.
1: And, you know, when that starts to happen, that's a that's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so one can make? So let's kind of get into that a little bit. So one can make the argument that we're printing a lot of money right now. So why can't this happen to the U.S.? It very well could. And mm-hmm. I would argue that I think there's a higher
2: chance of deflation than inflation here in the U.S. because of the magnitude of how much money they're printing. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think where the massive amount of printing uh, is a risk is for you know, countries that aren't what I would call a reserve currency. So what are the big reserve currencies in the world? You got the US dollar, you got the euro, you got the yen, and then you have the Chinese currency. Mm-hmm. Okay, And those are the bigger what I would call the reserve currencies of the world. And those are the ones that are at most risk, in my opinion, of massive printing of money leading to deflation, not inflation.
1: Right. Right. And right now we're not seeing for example, you know, real estate prices come down. We're seeing real estate prices skyrocketing essentially right now. Yes. So that's a completely different environment. Correct. Um from when land was going crazy and then all of a sudden, you know, people aren't buying anymore, so prices do have to come down. But, you know, America's on a buying frenzy, it seems like, right now in terms of real estate.
2: Yeah, it goes back to that demographic of, you know, how much is the savings rate? You know, we're lucky in a really good year. To have a six percent national
1: savings rate. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're just a consuming economy. It is very different demographically. Right. Exactly. And, you know, if we know the American consumer, they're going to continue to spend. And when you have people chasing fewer goods, prices, prices go rise. Up. Um, so until that changes, I, I agree. I think that that's not a concern, at least of mine right now. Yep. Um, and Ben kind of went back, um, and looked at the rolling 30 year annual returns since 1926 and even investing at the peak of 1929, Matt, which was followed by a huge collapse. S and P 500 still returned 7.8% per year over the next 30 years, which is not bad for investing at the worst case scenario we've seen in the U S market so far. And that's an annualized, right? That's annualized for the, the next 30 years. So, You know, obviously, I always say that the worst economic scenario is always ahead of us. Um, But from what we've seen so far, if you invested at the worst possible time in the S and P five hundred, the returns over a thirty year period annualized seven point eight percent, which is really, really not bad. Okay. Um, Ben goes on to say, it's also worth mentioning that the worst 30-year starting point in 1929 is likely to get overtaken by the peak of the market in 2000 by the end of this decade. The total returns from January 2000 through September 2020 were 242%. That's 6.1% annualized. Okay. Stocks would have to rise 175% in total or more than 10% a year, from now until the end of 2029, just to hit the 7.8% annual return number in the 30 years following the 1929 peak. Interesting. So I thought that was interesting. So we'll see what happens with that. um, And wrapping this up, he says that 7.8% annual return from the peak in 1929 constituted a total return of more than 850%. So the worst thirty-year return over the past one hundred years or so would have turned ten thousand into more than ninety-five thousand. Not bad. So I think that again, we are in um, a period that we've talked about before of instant gratification with our population right now. But you know, when it comes to investing, you really do have to think about it on a long-term basis. And uh, and Ben kind of ends with this. He says, save more money. This isn't the advice most investors would like to hear, but saving more money is one of the best ways to hedge a large number of risks in both the markets and in life. Love that. So, and we've talked again extensively before about how I could feel like I can make the argument that your savings rate is more important than, you know, actual investment returns. It also goes back to what you said in the past at times of stress, focus on what you can control. Mm -hmm. And your savings rate, you can control. That's right. Uh, The last thing I had here was it was kind of an interesting fact, and again, I'm not trying to predict what's going to happen with the election because I know that that's impossible, but it just kind of caught my eye um, is something that I thought was interesting. It was an article written on superhighway98.com, and they have a bunch of different links to articles on different areas of the economy and different subjects. Um, And they claim that Google Trends has predicted every election since it had its data dating back to 2004 when George Bush defeated John Kerry. And again, take this with a grain of salt. I'm not saying it's going to be completely accurate this time around, but it seems like it has been um, in previous elections since Google had this data. So this is how it works by going to Google Trends and comparing the candidates by typing in their last name and the election year. So, for example, Trump 2020 and Biden 2020, you can see which candidate is getting more searches on Google. Um, so before we kind of go into this, Matt, do you give this any weight before I kind of go over the results here? I don't know. <laughs> usually not. I'm usually pretty definitive person, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, Inherently, the reason I initially say I don't know mm-hmm. is I am extremely skeptical of these quote-unquote polls the past five years. Mm-hmm. They've been dead wrong. People still put credence in them. Right. When they shouldn't. It's amazing to me. And um, on top of that, what makes this different, though, in my mind is unless the data is being manipulated. Right. By Google. By Google. Um, then, um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. So it's um, it, it is really interesting. So we'll go back to start in 2004 when they had this data, or they claim. Again, I haven't verified that you know this is completely accurate, and Google hasn't manipulated it. But I'm just going off of what this article is saying. All right, okay? let's, let's run with it. Um, so back in 2004, it was George Bush versus John Kerry, and virtually from June. Uh the beginning of June, all the way up until the election, uh, George Bush always had higher searches in Google uh than John Kerry. And what happened? George Bush uh was reelected. Here we go. Okay. Going to two thousand and eight, Obama versus McCain. Again, uh the whole way from June uh of two thousand and eight until the election, Obama was trending higher in searches over John McCain. What happened? Barack Obama won that election. Fast forwarding to 2012. Actually, it looks like they were pretty even, uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, in 2012 from the beginning of June until uh, July, where Barack Obama started trending a little slightly higher than Mitt Romney and kept that lead all the way to the election. What happened? Barack Obama got reelected. 2016. Now, this one is very interesting, so I really suggest I link to that superhighway98.com article on our website, Um, so I would encourage people to check this out, but in 2016, you know, for the most part, Trump was slightly ahead of Hillary Clinton, but it kind of went back and forth from June of 2016 until the election, and then right around the election time, you know, Trump spiked huge in Google searches, okay? Okay. And what happened in 2016? Donald Trump Trump. got elected. So I'm sure everyone's asking the question, what's going on with the search trends right now? So for every period from October of 2019 until now, except for in May of 2020, Donald Trump has had a huge lead in Google searches compared to Joe Biden. Dramatically compared to all these other charts. Dramatically. Now, there is still time for that to switch. But if history repeats, it looks like Donald Trump is going to keep rising in search terms. And therefore, one could potentially infer that he's going to win in 2020. Again, I just thought it was really interesting. I don't know how accurate this data is, but I know that a lot of other people, you know, have done research on Google search trends of like COVID related symptoms and that correlates with spikes in COVID cases and that type of thing. Um, so, again, just thought I, w- I would throw that out there. Really interesting just to kind of read through that and see um, if it'll pan out in about a week or so. Um,
2: I'll just throw it out there. My base case is Trump gets reelected. That's my mm-hmm. base case right now. Yeah. So, so I I would have said that if you would ask me that question before you gave me that data, I Mm -hmm. would have told you that. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll turn it over to you. All right. I got two items for listeners, Mark, I think will be interesting. Um, first one could be a little, uh, controversial between you and me. Maybe not. Okay. So let's just, I'm gonna throw it out there. Yeah. All right. This is from zero hedge, uh, fed, uh, federal reserve chairman Powell said the Federal Reserve is evaluating the benefits of a digital currency. Mm -hmm. The Fed has not made a decision to issue a digital currency. So, Mark, uh, this doesn't surprise me. I could see paper currency as we know it go away in the next 10 or 20 years. I would love to know your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I think I've totally think this is going to happen, but I think people are almost taking it too far. I think that instead of just transacting with dollars it's just going to be digital. There's not going to be a change in how it's valued. It's just going to be all digitally uh, transferred. So, you know, when people talk about all of the, you know, cryptocurrencies and everything like that, it's literally just digitizing, I think, the U.S. dollar, which other than physically exchanging dollars back and forth, you know, I really, I don't see this as as a huge problem. I think that, you know, Someone's probably naive if they didn't think this was going to get brought up and talked about. Sure. But its I don't think it's going to have any effect on the economy in terms of the value of the U.S. dollar, or the value of the digital dollar, per se. I think it's its literally just kind of catching up with the times and that we are advancing technologically and that this is going to be digital eventually. It's a matter of time, in my opinion, and I would be
2: interested to see how much additional tax revenue the IRS generates when they can
1: fully see all the transactions going on. Right. Yeah. And they're probably pushing for that because I it's more it's more transparent. You know, you can't you can't um, you know, if you're if you're a uh, let's take a barbershop, for example, and you and you're taking cash. Can't do it anymore. You know, you can't do that anymore and everything's going to be recorded. So, you know, I could see pay- that happening yeah. i'm not saying that barbers you know skirt around taxes or anything but i'm just saying it's easier to do when you're physically getting paid yeah. in dollars or a bar that accepts cash only or when you go to right. the, the carnivals with my kids it's always right. cash yeah or tips cash tips yep you know so that that's a really interesting point because i so i kind of back up what i said earlier it definitely is going to have a bigger effect on uh people than i i think well, um, they're going to start paying a lot more Tax. Yeah, like a, bar, a bartender, for example. Do you yeah. have to start
2: reporting all that stuff? Yeah, you it's, will. You're going to be able to see it. That's what part. Of, I think that's part of the motivation also, is to have transparency on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. All right, I got another one. You ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Hedge funds in general continue their performance struggle in 2020, Mark. This source is uh, Eureka Hedge on October 21st. The year-to-date returns for the Eureka Hedge Fund Index Year to date was up 3.22 percent. Stop the presses! What is surprising to me is that assets under management for global hedge fund industry has rebounded by 120 billion over the first uh, six month period ending September 2020. So looking back several decades, especially in the 2000s, hedge funds were kind of generalized in society as what we would call smart money. They're ahead of the curve, right? And from what I've been seeing ever since um, 2010, they've been underperforming for some time. Mm-hmm. And so, mark your two cents.
1: Well, I think it just goes to show you that you know you don't have to have a PhD or you don't have to be a quote unquote expert to be able to earn average returns in the stock market. You know, I think that these people, I think we're getting to the point, and maybe this is just because I haven't been in the industry that long, but. We're getting to the point where people are starting to overcomplicate things. They're trying to find the holy grail, and it's just not working. You know, an example is that there were a bunch of AI, artificial intelligence-driven hedge funds out there that closed up shop in February and March because their algorithms have never experienced volatility like we did in the COVID so period. So what do I
2: always say? Those computer
1: programs and AI-driven stuff is only as good as the people that programmed, as it. The people that programmed it. So... You know, I really think that that people are starting to overcomplicate things. And, um, you know, especially you see this in the, uh, you know, pension management industry, especially for like state uh, employees, uh, like teachers, pension plans and everything. They're into all these complex, you know, uh, hedged strategies, long and short. And, you know, some of these funds blow up. Whereas, you know, I could probably make a pretty good argument that those teachers would do better just like in an index fund, for example. Sure. Um, So I think it's that these hedge funds are trying to get too cute um, with their performance rather than just going back to the basics. Yeah. I mean, I like like telling people what we do is not
2: exotic, sexy, sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It just takes a lot of work. Mm hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I like to think that our work has has paid off. Mm-hmm. And when I see people, as you say, try to get too cute, exotic with this stuff,
1: they're, in my opinion, that's that's not the route that mm-hmm. I want to take. And I think more people like these managers are trying to forecast or predict what happens. Right. So you see all these talking heads on there that technology is way overvalued. Well, is it overvalued compared to history? Yeah. But have we ever been in this type of environment that we're in right now? No. Good point. I mean, look all around us. All we do is use technology these days. That was completely different from 20 years ago. So when people tell me that, you know, Amazon or Apple is overvalued, I just I don't like to listen to that because it's a completely different environment than today. I think there's a stat that 85 percent of this country uh, has an uh, Amazon Prime account or uses Amazon in some form or fashion. So to tell me that you can put a multiple on that and tell me that they're overvalued, I just that. Amazon is a disruptor that has completely blown up the way people shop and the way people consume. Sure. So what is that? What's that weight in that calculation? Exactly. And you, know, you
2: could you could extrapolate that to a lot of these larger cap tech names. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I just think it's 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 interesting to kind of look at this data, because I think as time goes on, the generalization of smart money being associated with hedge funds. In my opinion, is starting to go down yeah. more and more. Yeah, I agree. And just generally speaking, uh, remember, listeners, we will not, you know, advocate you know specific stocks or specific sectors of the market. We're just pointing out the fact that year to date, guess what? Technology is the best performing sub index of the S and P 500. Mm-hmm. Not a recommendation, but you know what? It's a
1: fact. Right. Exactly. And instead of trying to predict or forecast that techs going to have this huge drop, you know. I think that they're just salty that they missed the train, probably.
2: Probably. So I call it uh, talking your book. So, you know, listeners, when you're watching a lot of these financial networks and you see people on there talking about stocks, they tend to already own those stocks. <laughs> right. And they're wanting to what we call talk their book mm-hmm. and talk up that position. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly.
1: Okay. Uh, Back um, to you. Yeah. So we'll go over the financial planning topic of the week. And I'm just going to ask people to bear with me here because it's kind of a longer one. Um, But this comes from a blog post written by uh, Nick Magooley. And this is titled, How Much Lifestyle Creep Is Okay? This was on September 22nd on his blog of dollars and data. Um, So Nick talks about how much lifestyle creep is okay when you start making more money uh, and when it starts to eat into your retirement savings. So, I think all of us are subject to a certain extent of lifestyle creep, um, but I think it helps to put numbers kind of to a conversation like this. Because it be good. initially, when people get a raise, they're like, hey, I can spend more money. I can afford a nicer car. I can afford a bigger house. Um, so, Nick kind of gets into the data behind this. And he starts out by saying this Imagine you just received a raise at work and now you want to go out and celebrate. After all, you've worked hard and you deserve something nice, right? Maybe you want a new luxury car, a better place to live, or maybe you just want to dine out more often. No matter what you decide to do with your newfound cash, you've just fallen victim to lifestyle creep. Lifestyle creep is when someone increases their spending after experiencing an increase in income, so that new raise quickly becomes a fancy new object or an expensive new habit and it's gone. So Nick makes the claim before we get into an example here that once you spend more than 50% of your future raises then you start by you start delaying your retirement if you want to spend the same amount of money you're spending in your working years as in your retirement years okay all okay? right so he has an example the investor's name is Annie Annie has after-tax income of $100,000 per year her savings rate is 50% or $50,000, which makes her spending rate 50% or $50,000 per year. If we assume that Annie wants to spend the same amount of money in retirement as she does while working, which is an example of lifestyle maintenance, and we also assume that she needs 25 times her annual spending to retire comfortably, then Annie requires $1.25 million. So you take her spending rate of 50,000 times 25 Uh, times to get the 1.25 million needed in retirement. So do you think that this is a good starting point for people to have a retirement number 25 times their annual spending if they want to spend the same amount of money in retirement as they do? I've never in my career ever came at it from that angle. Mm -hmm. I never have.
2: Um, I guess I always... Um, preferred to just reverse engineer it from all their income sources and run what the withdrawal rate would have to be from the investments. I've heard, though, a lot of people use these type of multiple metrics Mm -hmm. to do it. I guess I'm not against it, um, but I don't don't think it it also brings into uh, things like their fixed uh, pensions or Social Security. You know, that obviously helps the figure. Right. Um, So I'm not against it,
1: but it's not my preference. Okay. Um, With a 4% real rate of return and no changes to her income or savings rates over time, Annie will be able to retire in 18 years. Okay, So after 10 years of saving with a 4% inflation adjusted return, Annie will have accumulated $600,305. But Annie now gets a raise of $100,000 per year to increase her earnings to $200,000 per year after tax. How much of this raise should Annie save if she wants to retire on her original schedule? And you might think, just save at her original savings rate, right? But if Annie saves 50% of her raise, this would actually delay her retirement. Why? Because her retirement goal hasn't accounted for her increase in spending as a result of her raise. If Annie is now making $200,000 a year and saving 50% of it, which is $100,000, by definition she is spending the other 50% of it, $100,000, each year as well. Since her spending doubled from $50,000 to $100,000, her spending in retirement must double if Annie wants to maintain her new $100,000 a year lifestyle. Got it. The goalpost moved on the expense side. Right. Exactly. Her spending doubled. So if she gets the raise and she now decides, hey, in retirement, I want to spend $100,000, then she's going to have to increase her savings rate. So this means that Annie now requires $2.5 million to retire instead of her original $1.25 million. However, because Annie saved for 10 years as if she only needed $1.25 million for retirement, she must now work longer to make up for this lower level of savings in her past. So if she wants to have $100,000 to spend in retirement, it moves retirement back to 12.2 years, Whereas if she just continued to spend $50,000 per year, she would retire in eight years. So people have to make that decision if, you know, 4.2 years more of work is worth it to be able to spend double what you were planning to in the first place. I think it's some of the hardest things for pre-retirees to,
2: I guess, compute and value mm-hmm. is, you know, when Aaron and our team sits down with them and talks about, okay, you can retire at X age with $50,000 a year of income, or if you waited two years, you know, I'm going to throw out a fictitious number at 65,000. So I think the hardest thing for these retire pre retirees is to value. What is that extra X amount of years of working life worth to them in retirement? Mm -hmm. And then they're balancing that with what they perceive or guesstimate to be their longevity. I mean, it's a those are complicated conversations.
1: Yeah, very, very, Um, you know, so I know that was a lot and might have been kind of hard for people to follow. But I encourage you to check out this article because it really does make sense when you when you look at these numbers. Um, And then Nick created a table showing how much of your raise you need to, uh, to save to have the same retirement date based on your initial savings rate. And this table assumes that you require 25 times your annual spending rate to retire and your income grows at 3% per year and your portfolio grows at a conservative rate of 4% per year. Again, this article can be found on our website and look at this chart. But for example, if you have initial savings rate of 10% of your income that you're saving okay. for retirement, Nick claims that you need to save thirty-six percent of your raise to be on track for retirement. Still, right? Okay. So that still allows for you to spend some of that raise, right? We're not handcuffing people to say, "Hey, no lifestyle." Roughly creep. two-thirds you get to spend in this right. example. No, no lifestyle creep uh, is is something that you know. I think a lot of financial pundits on TV say that if you. You know, increase your income, then you absolutely cannot increase your spending. I think that's ridiculous because people aren't going to adhere to that. That's not realistic. No. Um, but the interesting part of this, Matt, is is your sa- initial savings rate goes higher, so does how much of your raise you need to save. So we just said that if you have an initial savings rate of ten percent, you need to save thirty six percent of your raise to be on track for retirement. If someone has a 25% savings rate, Nick claims that you need to save 53% of your raise to be on track for retirement. Okay. Okay. So the higher the savings rate, the more of the raise raise you you have to save. save. Yeah, exactly. Which is really interesting. So, and I think realistically, you know, most people fall between the five and 25% savings rate. I think that there's very few people out there that go much above that. So in essence his table would be helpful. Right. And his initial claim in the beginning of the article that he thinks once you spend more than 50% of your future raises then you start delaying your retirement, I think that that's a good number for most people and he goes on in this article to to say that. Um you know, he says that the 50% saving 50% of your raises is a simple number Um, Because it works for most people most of the time. And he goes on and says most people have savings rate of 10 to 25 percent. You know, this goes back to a couple episodes ago where nothing needs to be perfect. It just needs to work. So 50% is easy for people to remember, right? So, you know, you get a raise, you just save 50% of the raise. You get another raise, you just save 50% of that, and then you spend the other 50% of it. It's good enough for most people is what I'm getting at.
2: Yeah, this goes back to what I call our plus 1% rule. So um, let's say there's a company that tends to give out cost of living adjustment raises in June, right? And let's assume it's averaged 2% historically. This is the perfect example. You get a two percent uh, cost of living adjustment raise. Save half of that. The plus one percent rule mm-hmm. every year until you retire. You're not going to miss that one percent raise, mm-hmm. and it would achieve what he says in this article. Right, exactly. So I think in my mind that gives a- even more justification to kind of our rule of thumb that we like to employ.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I forgot who who I read this from, but I know I've talked before about how. If you're trying to make a decision on, you want to um, buy something expensive for yourself. So you want to treat yourself. So let's say um, you want to buy the new Apple AirPods, right? Nick was the one that I read his article and he said, hey, if you're going to buy the $200 new AirPods, then you have to double that and put $200 into one of your retirement accounts or one of your savings accounts. You talked about that in the podcast before. Yeah, so again, that's another version of the uh, 50% rule, right? So if you're going to spend the 200 on the AirPod, then you have to be willing to contribute, you know, $200 to your investment account. So I think that's another easy, good way to hold people accountable um, that would not subject them to as much lifestyle creep as as many would think. So um, I know it was kind of a long long winded uh, financial planning topic of the week. But I think it's something that a lot of people don't talk about that that do need to be discussed, because yeah. as long as you put numbers to something, um, you know, people can make that decision for themselves. But if they don't know how much they should be saving of their raise and they just decide to spend it all, it might alter their decision if you show them how long it's going to delay retirement. If retiring at example, 62 is really, really important to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's just a good calculation that people can go through. And I really encourage uh, everyone to check that article out. It's great. Um, Any other items or tidbits you want to go over before we wrap it up this week? No, I'm going to not say much ahead of the election. So we'll see what happens next week and we'll try to tape uh, post-election. How about that? Yeah, yeah, I think we should. uh, We should do that. And it should be an interesting time, regardless of what happens. And just to remind people what happened in 2016, when Trump got elected, um, you know, futures were almost down, I think, close to 5% uh, when it was said that he won. But then it closed the following day up 1%. Yeah, be careful. Market. Be careful on days like so that. you can, can go get, either way. Yeah, and it can get whipsawed and it can change really, really quickly. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, we're expecting to see some fireworks and we're prepared for that. So if anyone has any questions, I think uh, now would be a good time to, to send them in. And hopefully next week we can talk about that. Um, on the 70th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Love that. And send the questions to mark at com. Yep. Sounds good. All right. We'll leave it there for the week. Hope everyone has a good rest of the week and an enjoyable weekend. And we'll be back with you after the election next week. Take care.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. And we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict.